Good Friday to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. Hard to believe we've made it through another week, and before we know it, Thanksgiving is just around the corner. Um, But it's great to be back on the air, especially knowing it's a Friday. And here we are again uh, discussing founding rivals, as to be expected. But with each segment that's been discussed, we're learning something new about Madison and Monroe and how they have evolved from going to uh, what you call starting out at 101 level entry to now going well beyond the 101 point to where their names have become all the more um, relevant, not just in Virginia, but outside of Virginia. So tonight's, uh, or rather I should say, our podcast that we'll be discussing um, on the air now, we'll uh, be focusing on um, transitional um, stages. In other words, where is the um, new government going to be um, located and what and how we're going to go about uh, setting up uh, congressional districts. Because after all, for example, Virginia is a big state, so Virginia is going to have more than one district. So, uh, tonight's uh, lead-off bonus question is the following. After Virginia and New York had ratified the United States Constitution per their state conventions, what course of action would James Madison pursue next? And I must say before I give the answer that it was essential for that Virginia and New York ratified this Constitution because if they hadn't, uh, the government itself would probably probably be in greater peril, meaning danger. Now, yes, you still have North Carolina and Rhode Island who are still out there in left field in terms of uh, wanting to um, ratify this document at all. But without Virginia and New York, things could become more in limbo. So here we have 11 out of 13 s- states who have ratified but working on um, Rhode, yes, Rhode Island and North Carolina will be an even bigger challenge. But as for James Madison, you know he's currently in, still in Virginia right now, given that obviously for one he was there during, throughout the whole ratification convention as a delegate. But two, he's you know still got work to do after the convention's over. But but given in the aftermath that uh, New York had ratified on uh, June on July. 25th or 26th of 1788, James Madison uh, will go about returning to New York in helping uh, the Confederation Congress transition to its new government, or what will become the first Congress, which will also include planning a start date and a location for where the first Congress will convene, given that it will be uh, convening in uh, New York. I think that would make a practical, um, rather, I would think it makes uh, practical sense to have um, this new government convene in New York. After all, the old government is there, but um, I think it would be a lot harder all of a sudden to say, hey, we want to go as far south as possible to convene when, in fact, hey, if you've already got some stuff there, let's just um, improve what's already in existence in terms of government setup, in terms of location facility, and then make it into something a little bit more um, necessary for when the new um, 
the new uh, governmental institution comes into play. So in January of 1789, the process of choosing members for the Electoral College, being the body that elects the president, um, goes into uh, play. And then in the next month, being February of that year, the Electoral College would meet to choose the president and the vice president. Now, we must remember, folks, during this time that, you know, nowadays when, a pre when, a, when someone's running for president, they win the nomination of their party, it's automatic that their vice president, their choice for VP or vice president, is of the same party. But we must remember in 1789, that was not the case. Uh, however, when George Washington becomes president, uh, John Adams, his running mate, was vice president. But not to get too far ahead of the game, but I will tell you this, only one time in our um, nation's history did we have the president of one party and the vice president being that of the other party, and that was when John Adams became president. He was a Federalist. Thomas Jefferson was an anti-Federalist, or what we call a Democratic Republican, or a.k.a. Jeffersonian Republican. So, but of course, when we come to uh, 1804, and the reason why I mention that is because 1804 will be the year that the uh, 12th Amendment is passed, which pretty much says that, hey, the election of the president and vice president must be on the same ticket. We can't have split ticket or, should I say, separate ticket uh, voting for those two positions. Because as we all know, when Jefferson was running for president, um, it was um, in 1800, it was split pretty much uh, in a deadlock that ultimately went to the House of Representatives, where the House finally broke a, a tie after 40-some votes. And again, I know I'm getting ahead of the game, but I should remind you all that when uh, George Washington became president, or around that time, the um, elect how it worked was that uh, the president, the vice president, would have been uh, chosen uh, from uh, different parties. But thank heavens when Washington becomes president that John Adams is also a Federalist and he's vice president, so we don't have to worry about that issue. But it happened once, and it did create major issues. Thank goodness we don't have that in uh, today's time. Now, in March of 1789, a new Congress would officially meet in New York. So we are taking a lot of steps in the right direction. There is still a lot of work that has to be done. And here's the next question with regards to a lot of unfinished business. True or false? Was the Constitution close to being resolved after Virginia and New York had ratified? Uh, the answer is false. Remember, folks, we still have those two states, North Carolina and Rhode Island. And to make matters worse, Virginia's anti-federalist delegation went about successfully persuading the outcome in North Carolina to where the Constitution didn't get ratified. Now, this is dangerous. You know, it would be easy to think, oh, okay, um, if, you, if one lives in Virginia and they're not happy with the Constitution, then how can they go about persuading delegates in North Carolina to do the same thing? Well, of course, you know, we don't have telephones back then. We don't have uh, cell phones to text people. You know, letters can be sent, but 
there, there are ways to go about communicating information even along the state lines. But the bottom line is, is that these anti-federalists made their way from Virginia, made their way into North Carolina, and were able to persuade uh, those uh, delegates in attendance in North, Car North Carolina to not ratify the document. So what, what could you say would be a big reason behind North Carolina's inability to ratify besides the Virginia Anti-Federalist delegation getting in the way? Well, the North Carolina delegates, or let alone the delegation, had adopted a handful of amendments for the new Congress to approve before ratifying document. That's kind of like the same thing that Patrick Henry wanted to do, where he wanted to send a handful of amendments to all the other states for them to look at those who had not ratified yet, but perhaps send them to those who had already ratified to see if they would just be willing to change their mind and start all, start all over from scratch to where a second convention is going to take place. You know, I can understand in North Carolina's case that, okay, yes, you can send a handful of amendments for the new Congress to approve, but who's to say that the new Congress would approve all these new amendments right away? So the bottom line is, is that uh, North Carolina, in my opinion, is playing with a lot of fire. So North Carolina's refusal to ratify the Constitution impacted not just uh, North Carolina and not just the states up north like New York, New Hampshire, uh, Massachusetts, Connecticut. How about the states uh, south of North Carolina like South Carolina and Georgia from a geographical perspective? And because of North Carolina's refusal in ratifying the Constitution, their actions alone left a major part of the U.S. outside of the new government. So think. So let's look at it this way, folks. Yes, you got Virginia. Then to the then to the south is North Carolina. Then further south, South Carolina and Georgia. We also must remember too that North Carolina is the fifth largest state. Nearly four hundred thousand people are living there at this time. We don't have clearly defined uh, state boundary lines just yet. Of course, part of North Carolina goes into what we now know as Tennessee. So that could be that's another reason why, right there for um, further uh, population or a large population scale. So yes, South Carolina and Georgia are going to be geographically impacted by this um, for several reasons, but but it, it is fair to note that um, because of North Carolina's refusal, it does have an impact on the states further south of them, as well as Virginia. Not just geographically, but how things can get done politically, legislation-wise, I should say. All right, our next uh, segment here is the following. Despite opposition from the Virginia Ratification Convention, did James Madison and James Monroe go about maintaining proper communication with one another? Uh, the answer is yes, they did. I think it's great to know that here these two men, despite having some political ideological differences, they still are able to maintain a, a good degree of civility towards each other. And it is important because there again, you don't want to burn bridges with anyone. 
especially during this time of um, upheaval, especially by the anti-federalists led by good old Patrick Henry. But yet, you also don't want to burn bridges with the outsiders, too, because, you know, it, it'd be crazy for some people to say this, but I would have to say that, hey, and even, in seven, even in, after 1787, it's fair to say that we're all in this together, even if you may not agree with everything there is about the Constitution, we're all in it together. We've all got to play a part in making sure that the, that the um, document that was created or let alone crafted in Philadelphia is going to stand the test of time and that it is going to be able to prevail once um, a new president um, is uh, sworn in, once, a new Cong once this new Congress convenes, we've got to make sure that, hey, the Constitution's going to be there. And yes, once the first Congress convenes, maybe it's fair to say that some additional amendments will get debated on the floor. And who knows, maybe a handful of those amendments could, be, could end up becoming what we now know as the Bill of Rights, the first ten amendments. So anything's possible. But remember, folks, for our forefathers, regardless of their political ideology, regardless of the differences that they had, they were all in it together. So, what did James Madison achieve congressional-wise on September 16th of 1788? He helped pass a resolution authorizing the navigation of the Mississippi River to become a fundamental right to the United States' well-being. Remember, folks, that river holds a lot of promise. It holds a lot of promise for promise, I should say, <laughs> for uh, commercial navigation purposes. It also holds promise for those who are wanting to start a new life, to uh, settle on that western frontier so that um, over time, if there are large enough populations in these territories, that they have the potential of becoming an actual, or let alone, I should say, the potential of becoming actual states that will one day be admitted into the Union, being the United States. So, um, as I said a moment ago, James Madison helps pass a resolution authorizing the navigation of the Mississippi River. And his resolution also received praise from James Monroe. Hey, that's some good bipartisanship right there. And this resolution passage also would be presented to the upcoming uh, new Congress that will convene in New York. So, James Madison's able to breathe a good sigh of relief knowing that, okay, we're still transitioning from old to new, but at least I've got something that is moving in the right direction that the new Congress is going to um, take up and uh, debate on the floor. Well, here's a good bonus question right here for you all. In the months after Virginia ratified the Constitution, would Patrick Henry and the Anti-Federalists resume their oppositional attitudes towards the new document? Unfortunately, yes. They would make their case known before the House of Delegates. And those who refrained from joining Henry and his followers were not treated properly. They were bullied, threatened to being intimidated. Now, is this a true way to conduct yourself as a gentleman? 
I hate to say this, but no. Patrick Henry is not representing the right people. Yes, he claims to be speaking for thousands of people, but yet he's luring all these skeptics into his camp. He's making them become fearful of what has so much potential to actually be better for our country than what it was under this fledgling or let alone irrelevant Articles of Confederation that had basically um, outlived its um, long-term purpose. But you know what? If It's like this in today's time. If, if you have a lot of desperate people who are that unsure of how to um, go about making independent decisions on their own behalf, they will sadly turn to those whom they think can solve their problems only to be led down a path where um, poor decisions will be made due to influence, due to bad influences by those above who lead. And sadly, in this case, Patrick Henry is not setting a good example. He is allowing his um, followers to treat those on the opposition, being the Federalists or people who may not have um, actually gone one direction or one primary outweigh for um, supporting in general. But basically he's saying that, hey, it's okay to treat those on the opposite side like dirt over this. You know, treat them as if they don't mean anything. I think that's poor sportsmanship, <laughs> or just let alone poor, um, poor judgment. And we see that even in today's time. So... Patrick Henry himself, to have garnered even more support, he um, referred to an infamous um, letter known as the uh, New York Circular Letter, which had called for states to band together in forming a second convention with a two-thirds majority of the states. And this would have eliminated altogether what had been done in Philadelphia. So that, to me, is a very, very dangerous proposal because as men like James Madison and George Washington had said, hey, you get a second convention to convene, you will, le- you will see nothing but anarchy. And that's the last thing this new country can ill afford to have. You know, it was, it was painstaking enough to declare separation from England 12 years earlier. Think about how much more painstaking it had become just to get a, to get 55 men to attend in Philadelphia. Only 39 signed, but the, but the sacrifices that were made there to scrap a failed government that um, had no proper system of checks and balances and to now get something that is far more better although it still was considered to be the best that the forefathers themselves, or let alone the framers themselves, could come up with for the time. So this New York circular letter to me is dangerous, and anybody who in, who in their right mind would think it's appropriate to go along with, all I can say is God help those individuals. I don't know who would have thought of going along with it, but there were probably plenty of people in their time back then, who would have thought it would have been just fine? Henry's views were debated, but the Virginia ratification vote, along with the Constitution document itself, were upheld. So, 
you know, Patrick Henry will continue to debate opposition to this document until the day he until the day he dies, if that's fair to say. But thank heavens that um, the majority of the states have approved, and thank heavens there are enough Virginians who have enough smarts and decency to know that hey. We don't have time to go down Patrick Henry's uh, alley in terms of voicing uh, opposition when this um, document was uh, ratified, despite it being done so on a slim uh, margin of 89 to 79. So now uh, coming on another uh, key uh, component for the uh, for our discussion here. Here's some information about the. Uh, House of Representatives. Remember, folks, our two bodies of Congress are the House of Representatives and then the United and then the Senate. What's important to know about the House of Representatives? Well, given that the House of Representatives is the lower body in Congress, representatives in 1789 had the advantage in knowing that they would be directly elected by the people, meaning you know, people who, for example, did not, they didn't necessarily have to be in the government just to elect their um, representative officials serving in the House. On the other hand, the upper body, being the Senate, its members were dependent upon the state, on, upon their respective state legislatures for election and re-election purposes. So many of y'all are wondering, well, when did direct elections come about for United States Senators? Well, go back to 1913. Congress passes the 17th Amendment, which, pretty, which, eliminate, which eliminated, I should say, um, state legislatures' abilities to elect senators to where the power for voting on senators would go into the hands of the people. The new government, or should I say the first Congress, would see the Senate as larger than the House. And remember, folks, in 1789, you know, we only have 13 states. So representation in the House is going to be a lot um, different compared to today's time, and how so? Well, think about it, folks. We have 435 seats in the House of Representatives now. So that in today's time, it is much bigger than, say, the Senate, which has 100 members. And when the first Congress convened in 1789, there were uh, close to uh, 26 senators. Uh, perhaps I say close to 26 because North Carolina and Rhode Island had not ratified just yet, so you would have had, as of right now at that time, 22 senators uh, present. Now, ironically, the, um, the uh, House of Representatives, though, given at the time it was, um, even though it was not as big as the Senate, however, the House of Representatives in the first Congress would have the first attempt behind establishing a national revenue system to creating executive departments. All right, here's a, an important bonus question right here. Would James Madison run for a U.S. Senate seat? Yes, 
He ran as a Federalist against Richard Grayson and Richard Henry Lee, whom were each nominated by Patrick Henry. Sadly, uh, James Madison lost the Senate seat. He was the only Federalist who ran, so because he was defeated by uh, Richard Grayson and Richard Henry Lee, those two men were would become our first two senators. Patrick Henry had ruthlessly attacked James Madison for his staunch views that uh, supported um, the new government and believed that Madison's presence alone in the Senate had the potential of jeopardizing the people's well-being. Basically, Henry felt Madison would always side with the national government and ignore those whose rights had potential to be taken away without voicing their say. These accusations sadly played a big part in Madison's defeat. You know, it's one thing not to like someone's view or views, but to viciously attack the individual like there's no tomorrow, to me, has no merit. But that, but that's this kind of practice has been going on ever since our government was first established. However, there are far more sophisticated means to do it now in today's world because you have so many more technological outlets, not only to dig up dirt about someone, but just to get a nasty word out on why you don't like the other candidate. It's what's sadly called dirty work. I thought at one time I might have wanted to have gone into politics, but then when I realized just how much dirty work was involved in it, I told myself, you know what, do you really want to dig, do you really want to dig up other people's um, dirt? In other words, do you want to dig up dirt on them that's not true? Do you really want to go about ruining other people's character when you alone aren't 100% perfect and perhaps have done something that you might not be necessarily proud of? So... That's the uh, ugly side of politics. It doesn't make it right, but sadly that has become a out-of-control norm that, um, that if it would be nice to know if it could go away, but I think so many people are, in today's world are so interested in just about themselves that they will do whatever it takes to um, ruin the opposition to where um, they know that if they do that, then everybody will come flocking to them. It's a strange way of business, uh, politics is, but, um, but that's sadly the norm that we live in in uh, today's um, unstable 21st century world. What's unique about uh, November 14, 1788? Well, a bill would be brought before the Virginia House of Delegates it, was, it pertained to a bill for election of representatives in accordance to the Constitution. This would be uh, an example here of how we are going about um, setting up uh, congressional districting, or should I say congressional districts, in Virginia especially. James Monroe is involved in this. He's, as a matter of fact, he is one of 15 members on a committee that drafted a statute which would go about choosing Virginia's 10 members from districts versus an at-large system. 
and an at-large system is where one representative represents the entire state. Here, here we go. Here's a bonus question right here for you all. If you lived in Virginia, what was the voting criteria like, especially around 1789? Voting was limited to men, especially to white men. Voting that is being limited to a male to male freeholders older than 25 who own 25 acres with house or 50 unimproved acres. So you have to meet a, a strong criteria, folks. Um, just because you have 10 or 15 acres, it's not going to cut it. Just because you have just a few acres, it's not going to cut it. So there are restrictions, and these restrictions are going to be around for some time. In 1789, um, the elections for Congress, they were bound, boundaries would go hand in hand with county lines. So in other words, your county could border another county that might not be anywhere near the district that you're in. But this is where we're going to see how counties will merge, not merge, but they will um, lap, uh, they will connect with other counties within a certain radius to form a district that is larger than it should be, a district that will only cater to a select group of um, people, but will leave out others whom they um, don't feel are worthy of, re of um, having as um, constituents or what I should say representatives being uh, represented. Um, I'm sure many of you all are wondering, is there a term for that? I'm going to tell you all that here shortly. Now, James Madison, I should point out, was a, was a member of the 5th District. How so? Well, his county is Orange County, which is in the 5th Congressional District at this time. There are a total of eight counties that make up this district. Besides Orange, the other counties are Albemarle, Amherst, Fluvanna, Goochland, Louisa, Spotsylvania, and Culpeper. If any of you all are wondering um, what's unique about one of the counties being Amherst, that's named after a fella by the name of uh, Sir Geoffrey Amherst, who uh, served in the French and Indian War on the British side, but he was a very well-known, prominent military figure in his day. And he had such a, an enormous influence throughout his military career that, um, what do you know, this county in Virginia, being Amherst County, which is just north of Lynchburg, where my dad grew up, Amherst County is named in honor of Sir Jeffrey Amherst. And it's interesting to note, Goochland is not too far from where I live either. Uh, Spotsylvania County is uh, north of where I reside. Just go up Interstate 95 um, around the Fredericksburg area. Culpeper is right on the outskirts of Charlottesville, and Charlottesville being in Albemarle County. Louisa, Fluvanna, and Goochland are all adjacent to one another. 
So what I find interesting about why Orange County got put in here into this uh, 5th Congressional District because the setup of the district itself was done intentionally to include Orange County into a district that was heavily comprised of anti-federalist counties. And because the vast majority of these counties were anti-federalist, like um, Amherst, for example, uh, Fluvanna, Culpeper, just to name a few, this was deliberately designed to exclude James Madison. In other words, to pretty much say, okay, we're going to put your county in here, but, but we're going to stack you up against a lot of other counties that are anti-federalist. So therefore, if you wanted to run, in the, to run for the 5th Congressional District race, you can run, but you won't be guaranteed a victory because of so many other counties whose people are, are, whose people are stacked up against you. This example would later become famously known as uh, what we refer to as uh, gerrymandering. And I believe I may have mentioned this uh, from a previous podcast, but for those of you who are listening and who are new and either forgot or simply just don't know what gerrymandering is, the term itself won't officially become gerrymandering until the beginning of the 19th century. But the term is named after a fella whose name is Elbridge Jerry of Massachusetts, who signed the Declaration of Independence. He would have signed the U.S. Constitution had it not been for um, what at the time was that the Constitution itself, when the delegates convened in 1787 just to uh, craft and sign the document, a Bill of Rights had not been put into play. And so, therefore, Elbridge Jerry was one of three um, signers who refused to sign, the other two being George Mason and Governor Edmund Randolph of Virginia. But when Elbridge Jerry becomes governor of Massachusetts after the start of the 19th century, he goes about um, creating um, a congressional district that will um, benefit or the legislature, I should say, when they will go about cre creating congressional districts, Elbridge Jerry influences his party to create districts that will uh, benefit not only the legislators themselves, but will benefit the governor. In other words, they will deliberately um, remove um, people of the opposition, but also other minorities who, um, whose interests don't appeal to those of Elbridge Jerry and his followers. As a matter of fact, there was a famous political cartoon of a salamander, a huge salamander that carved up so much territory but left everyone else out. And that's how gerrymandering came about. I, I hate to say this, folks, but gerrymandering is one of the oldest um, illegal or should I say dirtiest political practices in our system. And both parties, Republican and Democrat, are equally guilty of doing this. It doesn't make it right, but it's sadly it's there, and I don't see it going anywhere. 
but this is but when gerrymandering does happen, it it's almost like getting revenge on the other party. Hey, you excluded my fellow um, representatives or constituents out of your all's district for X amount of time. Now that my party's in in the majority, it's our turn to exact some revenge. So when it comes to gerrymandering, this practice, there's not there's I don't ever recall any true compromises being made to say, okay, your district can go here, but make sure you include X, Y, and Z groups so that they're not forgotten. So basically, uh, as I said earlier, um, gerrymandering, yes, it is one of the oldest, uh, or should I say the oldest of the dirtiest uh, practices in politics, but it's really a practice of establishing multiple seats for one's political party, along with creating district lines to make it harder on opponents to win. So, yes, when gerrymandering occurs, you are benefiting just one political party, and you're doing everything there is possible to make it harder on your opponents, not only to win a future election, but to let alone challenge in court over what is considered fair and um, unfair representation. Well, uh, here's another question to think about. Okay, for those of us who want to serve in the House of Representatives, what requirements are necessary for members of the House? Well, here are the following answers. A member or a person, I should say, must be 25 years of age to run. They must be a citizen of the United States for at least seven years, and they must reside in the state that they hail from. But here's a trick. Here's something that's very um, tricky because it has happened throughout our nation's uh, history or let alone our nation's government history. Throughout history and into the present day, members of Congress have represented districts where they weren't officially residents. So in other words, we've had uh, congressional figures represent uh, districts where they did not um, reside, or if they did represent them, they were right on the uh, borderline between one district over the other. But here again, gerrymandering would have come into play where, hey, the party that's in power will uh, sneak in a favor and say, hey, John Smith, you're right on our line. We're going to allow you to uh, represent us. That's how much we like you. Well, here's a good bonus question right here for you all. Would James Madison go about pursuing a run for the 5th Congressional District despite all odds stacked against him? Yes. Despite receiving lots of support and opposition, he, I mean, he would do this. I mean, it's, it's a very admirable thing to do. But are there um, rules or laws on the book regarding... Um, not just elections, but how one can go about representing a district in Virginia, yes. And when you validate someone's election, you uphold it to say that, hey, this individual did win. If it's invalidated, you're 
um, doing the opposite. That is, you're um, not supporting the person's um, election victory. In other words, you are finding that um, that uh, the person did not meet the proper criteria for um, winning their campaign. So to invalidate one's election win on the grounds of violating a residency requirement would require a two-thirds majority congressional vote. The Anti-Federalists would file complaints with Congress and inquire investigations if, say, James Madison had won um, a congressional race in the House. That's how much the Anti-Federalists cannot stand this guy. Even one supporter who was loyal to James Madison feared that breaking a residential policy would impact Madison's chances of winning in general, regardless to where he resided. Who tried discouraging James Monroe from running in the 5th Congressional District? The answer is uh, Monroe's own uncle, Joseph Jones, who has pretty much been a role model to James Monroe all of his life. But why would Joseph Jones not want his uncle, I mean, his nephew to run? It's not because he doesn't think his nephew has potential. He would rather see his nephew focus more on law and less time on politics. Think about this. Being a lawyer isn't as dirty as politics. Being a lawyer, in Joseph Jones's eyes, might see far more uh, satisfaction and happiness than being a politician. But... uh, And also, too, Joseph Jones knew deep down that James Madison would be the better congressional choice to represent the district. Of course, Joseph Jones didn't tell his nephew this, and I think that was probably a wise thing to do, in large part because he decided to stay neutral in the upcoming 5th Congressional District race. And when you remain neutral, it's safe to say, yes, you could be undecided, but by remaining neutral, you're not hurting someone's feelings to where you have uh, burnt bridges with one person, and yet the, the outsiders can see you as playing favorites to the other candidate who won the race. Did anti-federalist leaders go above and beyond to persuade James Monroe in entering himself as their um, candidate for the 5th District race? Yes. Given the Anti-Federalists wanted him to run because, for one, he was young. Two, he had solid credentials as a war hero, as well as being a successful lawyer and politician. The Anti-Federalists want someone who's youthful, who's got a lot of ambition, someone who, um, whom they feel has the best views that represent their agenda. After all, James Monroe was worried about the government's power, or let alone their the right to uh, tax. He was worried about the government's um, not um, focusing on a bill of rights that should be that should have been put into the Constitution. 
Now, on um, December 8th of 1788, James Madison notifies Thomas Jefferson in a letter of his return to Virginia and challenging the 5th District seat. Here's another bonus question. Who is Burgess Ball? Well, it turns out that he is a political ally or a friend who has a strong understanding of the 5th District. In other words, he's going to help James Madison know how to go about campaigning in this district. In other words, he's going to basically tell Madison, all right, these counties have more anti-federalists than federalists, but he's also going to encourage Madison to go into these counties where anti-federalists are more prevalent, but to find ways to persuade those who are undecided in coming into the Federalist camp and supporting James Madison. That's that's what you've got to do, um, because if you don't try, then how are you going to be able to lure new voters into your camp? What I find interesting is the breakdown of this 5th district. Culpeper at the time was the most populated county, and it leaned more anti-Federalist Albemarle, on the other hand, was very tight. So it's fair to say that uh, there's not a lopsided advantage with one party support over the other, but it could either swing 60-40 or 50-50. Now Amherst, on the other hand, is far more anti-federalist, so James Madison's going to have a lot of work to do there, just like he would in Culpeper. Spotsylvania is a toss-up. It could go either way. There's no real clear-cut winner. Louisa is 50-50, and Orange County is basically very secure. In other words, there's an even number of Federalists and Anti-Federalist voters. Burgess Ball knew, and, and if you think just the demographics in, the, in these counties alone are enough, Burgess Ball himself also knew that the road to Congress would depend upon winning the interests or the votes of one, of one religious group in particular. That was the Baptists. Why the Baptists? Because they were the largest religious group, or should I say largest religious sect in Virginia, whom were responsible a few years earlier for helping defeat a proposal introduced by Patrick Henry that would have allowed the Episcopal Church to become the official head church in Virginia. So, if if you're gonna um, if you want to ensure that people's religious rights to free religion and free worship are going to be exercised, don't you want to be able to uh, represent yourself? in a manner that's going to be able to win votes of those who either know what outlet they want to go with or those who are neutral but yet need to find a place uh, where they belong in terms of how to go about voting on the political spectrum. So the Baptists are going to be key because they are the largest, I mean, they were the largest group of religious dissenters in Virginia at one time, but they still are the largest religious group in their time in Virginia. 
yes, the Episcopalians have a good number, but Baptists are going to outweigh the Episcopalians. So if either one of these candidates are going to win, they have to appeal to the Baptist uh, vote. Without it, they are up a hill, or up a creek, I should say. Well, folks, we've covered a lot of ground tonight, or wherever you all are. Some of you, it could be daytime, depending on where you all are in the world. But regardless of where you live, we've covered a lot of um, ground this evening as well as um, for today. I look forward to being back on the air again. And our next podcast, we'll talk about um, the actual um, setup of government in New York Because uh, before we know it, we will have a new president being sworn in, being none other than Mr. George Washington. We will have to think about how Congress is going to to take up um, a handful of um, legislative ideas or uh, topics. You know, we have to remember, too, folks, that people just didn't say, hey, this is where I want the new government to go. No, they already had a plan. And and without plans, how are you going to succeed? So, our forefathers still have a lot of work cut out for them, but they are really moving on the right track. Well, I hope all of you have a good weekend. I look forward to being back on the air again here soon. Take care.